This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael Hyatt's new business growth training, Five Keys to Building a Business that Lasts in Any Economy. You can sign up today at lead2.win slash webinar. Hi, I'm Megan Hyatt-Miller, and this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work and succeed at life. Today, we're continuing our conversation about how to create a more just and equitable workplace with our guest, Danielle Rogers, Director of Human Resources at Michael Hyatt & Company. Hey, Danielle. Hey there, everybody. Good to be here. We're so glad to have you. And Anthony Hendricks, Director of the Center for Biblical Unity at Williamson College and Area Manager for Logistics at Amazon. He's also the co-founder of The Public, a conversation on race here in the Nashville area. Hey, Anthony, thanks for coming back. Hello, everyone. Great to be back again. Looking forward to additional conversation. Me too. We were just joking before we started that we could probably have five episodes on this topic because, (laughs) as you said, Anthony, it's so vast. You know, Absolutely. We began the conversation last time by talking about why justice and equality are big issues for us as business leaders. And if you missed that, please go listen to it now because it really kind of provides the the big picture context for what we're going to be talking about today, which is much more practical what you can actually do inside your own um, organization or your business uh, to make this issue better. This is really a business issue because it affects our competitive position in the marketplace and also our profitability. After all, businesses with a diverse workforce have more access to talent. That's so important. Uh, Broader thinking for innovation and also 19% higher revenue. That's a really important statistic that should make all of us pretty excited to listen to this conversation, I think. Uh, Of course, it's also the right thing to do. This is a human rights issue. It's a moral issue. And it's an opportunity for our leadership. It's an opportunity to step up, to be courageous and intentional, as Anthony said in our last episode. Um, And I think that's really the goal of this work, you know, to be courageous and intentional such that we create organizations that are ultimately not just, quote unquote, not racist, but that are, are intentionally anti-racist, that the policies and the culture that we're building inside our companies are welcoming to people of color, you know, that they um, really recruit from the very best talent that's out there, that we're creating opportunity for others, that we're creating innovative solutions, but that we are intentionally anti-racist in the way that we uh, design our company. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm so excited to dig in. So today we want to take this down to a practical level for leaders, and I want to talk about the problems that we face in our businesses when we try to tackle this issue, and there are many, believe me. And I really want to get to some practical solutions so that you feel empowered to start uh, making these kind of changes in your company and seeing the results that come from those. All right, so let's talk about hiring. I feel like this is the topic that um, really, you know, where, where it gets tricky, but also where the rubber meets the road. Why do companies struggle in hiring people of color? Danielle, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, I think that sometimes we don't even realize it, but we have as an organization biased criteria or limiting criteria for hiring, um, including the required experience. So, So taking some time to look at candidates and figure out, If you need to look at candidates who have transferable skills, perhaps from a different industry, who have experience that comes by way of their volunteer experience and maybe not by way of their vocational experience. Um, We know that there are different glass ceilings um, in the marketplace that uh, as a result result in people of color not having the same access and opportunities. So we don't want to perpetuate that same cycle when it comes to um, being able to offer them career opportunities simply because of that lack 
of access. So being creative and how you are um, looking at your own expectations for uh, for that particular job. I think that's one one big thing to look at. And then also um, looking at uh, ethnic or traditionally African-American or culturally specific um, names when you are looking at applications and resumes. Um, there are companies out there that have software that allows you to even black out um, and not be able to see the names of candidates as you are looking through their resumes um, or even you know, internally, just making sure that you have a check and balance to hold yourself or your hiring team accountable um, to look a little bit closer, look a little bit deeper, making sure that when you're looking at those applications with those um, ethnic names, that you are still looking very closely at those resumes and figuring out ways that you can look for their atypical experience to be able to gauge not just their passion, but their proficiency in the area that you're trying to hire for. Okay, Danielle, I have to like interrupt for a second because I can hear questions coming from our listeners, which is like, wait, wait, why do I need to consider atypical experience? You know, why would I need to consider, um, you know, uh, volunteer experience or something like that? So I want to just say at the beginning, you know, we're operating from the premise that uh, for all the reasons we've mentioned in the last podcast and this one, that diversity is good, that it's something you want more of in your company, but that we're all struggling to figure out how to make that happen. You know, particularly if you as the CEO or the leader of your team are white, you know, that's challenging for you. And so um, I just want you, Danielle, to kind of back up and explain why that's a relevant part of this conversation about hiring. Yeah, I think that is a great question. I think that one thing we need to consider when you are are marketing is that um, typically when it comes to career success, we know that statistically people are able to climb the ladder much faster and they're able to see that they have a solid place and a path in an organization when they have someone who's on their side as an advocate, mm. um, who is someone within the organization who can advocate on their behalf, who can speak well of them at the executive table, who can um, advocate on behalf of them when it comes to time for promotions and who should get new developmental opportunities that lead to promotions. And we know historically people of color do not have those kind of internal advocates within in, um, companies. And as a result, um, we need to make sure that we are um, not just continuing to operate in that same system that has allowed certain people to ascend faster in their careers and others that have been a little bit more stagnant. So it's, it's basically taking we're asking you to take some time to step back and acknowledge the limitations that may have, and in many cases have created uh, a gap between someone's proficiency and their passion and the kind of roles they've been able to walk into. Um, there is a vast gap when it comes to access and opportunity for people of color that we're trying to bridge that gap. So as a result, you may be looking for someone who, you know, for a financially financial related position at your job um, to be able to fill a role but you may have to look for someone who perhaps served on a board in a financial or treasurer capacity or someone who had another type of role, but they did projects that involved them having to oversee budgets and um, interact and show their financial savviness. So, and, and here at Michael Hyatt and company, we also have um, through a part of, as a part of our hiring process, what's called a test assignment phase before the candidates even dive deep into their um, higher level interviews with us. Um, we screen their actual abilities. So that way we're able to see what their proficiencies look like. And we're not assessing 
what we perceive their proficiencies to be, or we're making sure that we are not incorrectly judging what the, the candidate is able to do based upon some false expectations that we've set, um, if that makes sense from a hiring standpoint. So that's why it really requires us as organizations to go out and find out where the people of color are, to market our jobs to them, to recruit them there, but then also to make sure that we are looking in unique ways to find the criteria and job experience that we're looking to find on the resumes. You know, but we've been talking a lot about recruiting. And one of the things I hear from fellow executives and business owners a lot is, you know, I just don't have any people of color that are applying. And I think that the interesting thing about this is you and I have really talked about it is one of the the biggest problems is that uh, in HR, we're just taught to really prioritize referrals. You know, we want those referrals mm-hmm. because we want more people that are the same quant- of qu- quote unquote cultural fit as the great employees that we are have. Um, Of course, the problem is if your team is primarily white and they're hanging out with people that are mostly like them, you're just going to end up with a whole bunch of white candidates. You know, it's just kind of a self-perpetuating challenge, you know. So, um, Anthony, I'd love to hear your thoughts on recruiting and how to kind of think about that, especially as we're kind of thinking about this professional world and highly qualified candidates like you were talking about in the last episode. I guess it goes back to our discussion um, at the end of our last time together, and that's intentionality. Mm-hmm. And, and I will throw into um, into the discussion not only intentionality but relationship building. Yes, which is really it's 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 a it's a difficult thing because of the way our country has been shaped, right? And so because of redlining and and other issues, we have we have systematically separated ourselves. Um, and so outside of a few people of color who have made their way into the corporate space and moved into neighborhoods that were predominantly white, for the most part, we are separate as two cultures or as, as cultures. And so the, the way that plays into the hiring process is like you said, if I'm going to look for talent, I'm going to ask one of my top sales reps, hey, give me some some of your, your, your friends. Mm-hmm. Who can I bring into this organization? And if they haven't developed any relationships across cultural lines, then they're going to go to their friends and their friends are other white guys or white young ladies, and, and, and they'll bring them into the discussion. And so that's why I say relationship building is huge, especially from a, a leadership perspective, right? So if I am not intentional about developing additional relationships across cultural lines. And I know even that is a difficult thing for most people because, you know, one of the things that I run into often is, as I'm teaching my classes, um, this is one of the things that I I, I tell my class uh, uh, participants, on your way out, this is some of the, these are some of the things you must do. And the first thing I say is you need to start developing relationships across racial lines. The issue with that is most of my people live in predominantly white spaces. Right. Like Williamson County, for instance. Where right? we're recording. That's exactly. right. Exactly. And so um so so now they're running around in Williamson County looking for the six percent of, of African Americans that are in this county. Right. And that can be a very difficult thing. So I, I say that for your listeners so that they understand that I know that this is a difficult thing. I know that it's going to take additional time that you may not have. Right. And so you may walk away from this conversation saying yeah, I hear what he's saying, intentionality, this, that, and the other, but I've got all of these other initiatives that I'm working on. 
who has the time to, to go looking for relationships? But that's really the only way that this is going to happen, right? Um, that's right. Unless you begin to hire people of color, and then you can begin to ask them, all right, can you bring in some of your friends? And so then they are now going into their spaces, their, their places of influence and saying, hey, you know, this organization is really serious about diversifying. Why don't you come and take a look at them? And I think something to think about as we're looking at the diversity of the populations in the areas that we work and we interact, even if you're talking about four and a half, five percent African-Americans in most in most areas, when you look at the overall population, that still comes out to I did the math with Williamson County that still comes out to about 10,000 African-Americans that are there within the county space that are people that are oftentimes concentrated to your point, um, Anthony, about how we are, um, our society is oftentimes racially separated. But the way that that can work in our favor is when you get into those circles with people of color, your likelihood of interacting with someone who will be a good fit for a job opening or someone that you can create an organic friendship with increase. You just have to get into those spaces Mm -hmm. first. So I know we mentioned a few times very briefly HBCUs, which is Historically Black Colleges and Universities, but they have very advanced, robust um, networking Mm -hmm. for their alumni. And there are also nationally recognized sororities and fraternities that operate on a professional level um, nationwide, along with lots of professional organizations that focus on um, specific uh, professions. For instance, there are professional organizations for people who are of color, but that are journalists, the National Black Association for Journalists that you can connect with and and promote your job positions through Mm. through them by finding someone locally um, that is a part of that chapter or even nationwide that can connect you to the local resource. And there are equivalent organizations. There are local uh, black chamber of commerces that exist in many different um, counties across the country. So it's about getting into these diverse spaces, getting your foot in the door, staying there, being comfortable, being the minority. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that probably for a while, we right? Could. Um, being comfortable as a, a white person or someone who's not of color, being comfortable in those spaces when it's reversed, when you're the minority, building those relationships and friendships in an organic way. Because when we look around, I think even, you know, for me, I'm I'm a um, the director of human resources, a black woman, but I'm also a pastor's wife as well. And when I look at churches in the area, including in Williamson County, uh, there are churches, for instance, if you lead a, a religious organization that are very diverse. So, you know, there's not, they're not in high quantity, you know, but they are out there. So there is something that those organizations or those uh, churches are doing to attract and to retain people of different backgrounds. So I think it, it's something, it's a misnomer that it's impossible for us to be able to do this there. Um, even when you're dealing with a low percentage of people of color in your immediate area, there still is a, a broad base of people that you can connect with, build great relationships with. And um, if anything, uh, if even if it's only one for one reason at all, it's just to building relationships and then those can lead organically to filling your jobs as well. But there definitely is opportunity more mm-hmm. so than we think that's out there. That's really good. You know, Danielle, we've talked about just the need uh, for time, you know, to think, be thinking ahead and uh, to always be kind of building our bench of potential candidates well in advance of the time when we need to hire, you know, so really thinking ahead is part of our vision. And, you know, Michael Hyatt and company right now uh, has about 15% people of color on our team. We're talking about, we're just about to go into strategic planning. We're talking about uh, adding to our vision script, a part of our vision under the culture section, if you're familiar with that uh, concept from the Vision Driven Leader book, um, that we want to see our team become 50% people of color within three years. 
Now, you and I have talked about that a lot. We haven't made the final decision that that's what we're going to go with because that'll be part of our strategic planning. Uh, but that would require aggressive recruitment to get there. You know, that's yes. that's a significant jump from where we are. And so you and I talked about we need to have uh, time on our side. We need to have diverse recruiting uh, avenues. We need to perhaps uh, tap communities that are uh, have high concentration of professionals like Atlanta or Birmingham that are close to us. For example, this course will be different for every geographical area uh, where there are a lot of people of color there who are in professional positions already. And, you know, perhaps there are recruiting agencies, headhunters, you know, things like that, that we can connect with and diversify our network. Cause that's really, I think so much of what it's about. And that's kind of what you're, you're both talking about and the, the challenges we're facing here. I got to go back to intentionality, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it's just not going to happen because everybody wants it to happen. Nope. Right. It's it's like what you just said, Megan. Um, you've got to intentionally get into spaces where um, people of color exist. And quite frankly, you've got to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the, that's just the nature of getting into spaces of the other as a white person, because um, by and large, you've you've not had to do that. Um, and so to to do that, to get into those spaces is pretty uncomfortable, um, which takes me back to my my, my comment about courage. Um, you you just got to get in there and mix it up, make make some mistakes, say some yep. stupid things. <laughs> I mean, just all of that is a part of diversifying your organization, um, and it's tough. It's tough. Okay, one of the things I'd like to talk about with both of you is the importance of having people of color, if you're thinking about diversity, having people of color in positions of leadership rather than just in entry-level positions or uh, something like that. How important is that and why? It's extremely important. I mean, if you don't have voices at the top, lending the, the perspectives and the experiences of people of color then I don't I don't think the 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 total diversity of your company will ever happen, right? So we're talking more more than just window dressing or a couple a couple of people to put on your website and hey we're diverse. Um, we need people in positions of leadership who are making leadership decisions. That's right. Um, and and I think that is extremely important. Um, and, and and I think again I think it's a difficult thing. Um, unless you, you walk into this understanding that this is what we're going to do. Like, I love the fact that you guys have a vision that by a certain time, you're going to be 50% diverse, right? That's what it takes. It takes a visionary leader to say, this is what we're going to do. And then put in practices that will get you to that, to that goal. Well, then all of a sudden the innovation kicks in because yes. the commitment is there. You you have said, this is part of our vision. This is what we're committed to. And now all of our innovative thinking can go to work. Absolutely. How do we do it? Well, if that doesn't work, then could we try this? You know, what else is necessary? And if it's just kind of aspirational, like, oh, it'd be great to be more diverse. Well, what does it mean to be, quote unquote, more diverse? Absolutely. You know, we're, we're really going for something much more concrete than that um, and much more far reaching. So I, I think I agree with you on that. I think making that part of your vision, we talk a lot 
lot about vision on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And what we realized when we reviewed our vision script this year was that while we said that diversity was important to us, we were not explicit about what that meant. And therefore, we really couldn't measure if we had achieved it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that was a missing piece for us. And that's a big takeaway as we head into the future. I was just going to add really quick, I think Anthony made some really great compelling points, so I don't have much to add. But when you are hiring uh, a diversity candidate or promoting someone who is going to be in middle level or senior management within your company, part of the benefit to that is they're able to focus on some of the high leverage opportunities um, for change and influence change at a much faster rate. Um, For instance, there are lots of ways to realize a diversity bonus at an organization, but until you have specifically created a vision for how you're going to measure that diversity, as you mentioned before, Megan, but even um, taking the time to step back and realize, okay, you know, the last, you know, couple of years, we've launched products and we've been able to assess the market in a much more precise way. We've been able to kind of get ahead of the curve and figure out more about the felt needs of our customer base and kind of foresee a lot of issues and get ahead of them. Why is that? You need someone who is able to champion that at a higher level um, and able to, to step back and figure out what are the patterns that this new diversity bonus has created for us and how can we continue to replicate that? Um, and then on top of that, another great benefit is you have the rest of your staff that's able to see that you value diversity at the management or executive level. And then that inspires them, those future executives, those future you know managers to continue to climb the ladder because they see some piece of themselves in their leadership and they then see that it's possible. That's great. That's a great point. All right. I want to talk about culture because, Danielle, you mentioned in the last episode how important it was not just to recruit people of color to your organization and pursue diversity in your hiring, but really to create an environment and a company culture where you're able to retain those people, to develop them, to integrate them into your culture, to create you know a big table for ideas, all that kind of stuff. And I want you to talk to us about how we can do that um, in practical ways, because I think this is unfamiliar for a lot of us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, Megan, you made a great comment that I love earlier and I'm completely aligned with regarding culture being the water that we're swimming in, right? That we don't even realize sometimes that we're in. And it's up to us as organizational leaders to create water um, for our team to swim in that is going to continue to encourage professional development that's going to make the space for uh, for people to feel that, that they are seen and heard and that they can make an impact on the company at large. So I think culture is huge and it's the thing that makes such a big difference as to whether or not your diversity hires are going to decide to stay with you long-term or leave or decide to um, be silent or feel the safeness and security to be able to speak up and share their ideas um, and brainstorm with your team. So I think um, part of the way that you do that is by making sure that even in your hiring process that you're taking time to get to know the felt needs of uh, your candidates. Um, Figure out what is important to them, especially when you're looking at um, women of color, for instance, you know, one of the, a great benefit is looking to make sure that you have really 
excellent health care and health insurance? And what is your what is your parental leave look like for uh, families who perhaps are single family uh, parents? And we know that disproportionately people of color oftentimes can come from single parent households. What does the support system look like for them to be able to feel the confidence to um, to be present parents, to walk away from um, their vocation for a couple of months, and then to come back knowing that their job is not in jeopardy? Um, so it's taking the time to think through um, providing the support system and the resources to provide those kind of benefits to make sure that their work environment is taken care of, that the workload is still manageable when they come back because there's been some kind of plan for coverage when they're gone. And um, there's a way to make sure that their work and their job is still protected upon their return. It also just takes some some initial uh, research uh, ahead of time to figure out how you can um, better connect with those candidates and uh, figure out what their felt needs are before you even have a chance to to interact with them through the interview process. But then once they are on board with your organization, I think it's important to um, have some training and tools and resources for all of your staff, including those that are of color, to be able to um, climb up the learning curve with ease to understand um, everything from company acronyms to understand more about you know a profit and loss statement and things that will benefit them if they are strong candidates who are very proficient and passionate in what they do, but in order for them to take the next step in their leadership, they need to know more about budgeting, need to know more about high-level finances. They need to practice their uh, presentation and public speaking skills. Um, I think one program that I've loved that many organizations have begun to um, take on that are championing diversity and career development and mobility and growth is uh, creating uh, opportunities for cross-training for employees to learn more about an adjacent work center or department. Department, um, in order to help them to realize uh, potential career opportunities that they would not have otherwise even known about or been interested in, and that can then result in continued promotions um, over the years. Um, and I think that one of the other things while we're talking about promotions is in terms of um, inequalities, financially speaking, with salary. Um, it's important for us as the organizational leads when we're deciding how we're going to promote from within. And, and um, as we're hiring externally, it's important for us to also make sure that we're not deciding salary solely based upon what someone made in their prior job, right? Hmm. Because we know that there um, are uh, different barriers there that would prevent um, people of color from being able to make the same equivalent of their white counterparts. So we don't want to then kind of add insult to Perpetuate. injury by only... By only paying them, yep, perpetuating the same cycle by only paying them what they mm-hmm. previously were paid, but looking at their skills, look, looking at what they bring to the table, and looking at the internal equity at our own companies and figuring out um, how what we are considering paying this person correlates to someone else who is performing a similar job function at our organization. Um, but there are there are lots of ways um, for us to, um, as organizations, make our company really one that not only is a proponent of diversity, but that attracts um, diversity candidates to want to come and to stay with us long-term. That's good. Anthony, what would you add to that? Um, you know, I, I, when, when you asked the question, I wrote down two words, um, assimilation versus accommodation. Mm, that's um, important. You know, uh, one, of, one of my favorite classes in my, in my master's program was organizational culture. Um, and, 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 and then in this particular instance, we didn't just, we weren't just talking about, you know, black, white, and America. we were talking about global organizational culture because the world is getting smaller. Right. That's and right. so one of the, one of the things that, um, I remember in, during this course was we talked about 
understanding and knowing your culture so that you can accommodate um, the culture of the employees that you're bringing in, right? As opposed to asking them to assimilate to an already structured culture, which I understand in, 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 in a lot of instances, there is a company culture that mm-hmm. you kind of run with. Um, but if you are malleable, when you have other people from other cultures coming into your organization, they can help form a new culture. Mm. Um, and, and so as you're accommodating the cultures that are coming in, you can now form a new culture that is more inclusive and that then becomes um, uh, attractive to other people of different cultures, if that makes sense. That's great. Um, Can you give me like a specific example of what that might look like to accommodate? Here's a great example. At our delivery station, we have what we call a meditation room. This is at Amazon. That's awesome. Right. So when I got there, I was like, okay, so what's up with the, what's the meditation room? Well, we have um, a number of Muslims that work at Amazon. Right. And so they have specific prayer times that they must do um, mm. in order for them to, um, you know, walk out their particular religion. And so this meditation room was set up so that they have a quiet place to go to, to engage with their God and, and to practice whatever they practice. Now, that doesn't hinder what they've been brought on board to do, but it accommodates who they are. Um, as as Muslim workers for Amazon. And so, you know, I, I thought, man, I was like, man, that's that's pretty impressive. You know, just never thought about that. Um, and, you know, most people think that Amazon is the company from hell. But, <laughs> but, but to understand that, you know, even Amazon understands that they have numerous cultures that, and they, I mean, of course, Amazon is a global organization. So they've had the opportunities and the necessity to think through a lot of this. Because they're, you know, they have they have stations, delivery stations in in Muslim countries, mm-hmm. and so what does that look like? How does that differ culturally from what's going on in America? And so they've had to accommodate various cultures predicated on where they are. You know, Danielle, one of the the parts of your responsibility is caring for our employees, of course, and that has had, uh, you know, kind of a particular urgency about it in the last several months with the uh, George Floyd killing and then subsequent killings or, or others that became kind of in our consciousness simultaneously uh, with his murder and I just would love for you to to kind of talk about the role of the HR director or uh, the leadership in caring for employees of color when there are traumatic uh, cultural incidents that happen. I think that one of the things we have to keep in mind is that every every people group kind of deals with uh, things in a a unique way. And I think that for African-Americans, especially, there is almost like a tribal impact and um, emotional trauma that is felt collectively, even when it's it's unique, because these things that have happened um, nationwide or that have been brought to light are things that more often than not, the immediate instances we see in the news have not been things that have happened to the family members or the friends in our, um, of the, the, the folks that we employ, but they can empathize with the experiences because they've had something similar that they have heard of happening to their friends or family, or even their own interaction, whether it's, um, direct or indirect with, um, racial discrimination. So 
I think it's important if you are a non-person of color trying to understand why this is um, so important and deeply impactful and hurtful to people of color, even when, you know, George Floyd was not their cousin or their sister or their, you know, their brother. um, I think you have to step back and understand that there's a collective hurt um, from um, this people group that we all feel. So when one, one is hurt or one dies or one is, is going through difficulty, we all feel it. Um, But I think from an organizational and from an HR director standpoint, it's, it's important to check in and often, you know, with your staff just to see if they are okay. And more often than not, the answer that I keep hearing is that um, I'm not okay. You know, mm-hmm. they're in the midst of, you know, of course, this global pandemic, there also is what seems to be a war that's waged on, you know, people of color that they're just reminded of, we're reminded of all the time. And that is a lot, lot of psychological weight to carry and to bear. And I think it's up to us to lean in um, and ask often how they're doing, but then also to be creative in your existing um, benefits or even new benefits or emergency assistance or whatever you choose to call it that's created to be there to help them if they have um, some self-care needs, um, whether it is additional um, time off that they need to take. And you, you know, as a leader would then work with their supervisor to make sure that time off is truly protected and it's true time off and not kind of like half time off, half work. Um, and, you know, also checking to see if they have any mental health needs that they just felt like they have not been able to address because of financial reasons, providing the finances um, and the resources of some you know, names of, of local therapists or counselors in their area to be able to reach out to, um, confidentially about their situation and, and begin that, that process and that journey of, of, uh, of healing. Um, those are all things that, you know, even if you have these benefits already in place, you may think, oh, well, my employees, they know, they know where to go. They know that they can utilize those things, but oftentimes people, all people, regardless of their color, need permission to take a deep breath and to pause and focus on their own, um, mental, emotional, and oftentimes spiritual health. Mm. Um, so that's important to us to care about our employees holistically and not just what they can mm-hmm. give to us. Um, because long-term we're helping to prevent burnout. Um, we're helping to make sure that what they're doing at their, their work with us is sustainable long-term and that they see that we value them as people and we want them to, to stay around for the long haul. That's really good. Um, Anthony, what about having conversations around race? You know, I think Danielle really gave us some good insight into how to care for the people of color on our team. But as we think about having conversations about race, how can we do that well and how can we do that badly in the context of our organization? (laughs) (laughs) To have conversations around race, I think it really begins with a concerted effort to define the terms that are going yeah. to be used during the conversation. Okay, Anthony, I got to ask you something before we even go on, because I just thought of this. Yes. This is probably a question I should have asked at the beginning. Is it even appropriate to have conversations about race within the workplace? Is that a good idea or a bad idea? That, I, I feel like that's like level one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> okay. because again, um, I think what that does is that allows people of color to feel seen, right? And so if you, if, if everyone just kind of, is wanting to tiptoe around this issue, especially now, especially while mm-hmm. the country is such at this, you know, this, these polar opposites as it relates to race, to not have discussions around it, you almost feel like as an African-American, like, do they even care? Right. Right. Like it's, we're just pretending to be colorblind, exa- which is yeah. dehumanizing. Yeah. Like, yeah. like mm-hmm. life goes on. Right. Mm-hmm. I also think that in order to engage those conversations 
where they don't get heated, <laughs> I think is a, is a good word, is to make sure that everyone understands what the terms mean that you're discussing. Like, okay, so before we jump into this this conversation, when I say white privilege, this is what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say um, white fragility, this is what I mean. When I say um, whiteness, um, what does that mean? Like all of these terms, I think, need to be explained so that as the conversation is, as you're engaging in this conversation, you know, people aren't shutting down internally because, yeah, oh, why right. they say that? Now, they may not say that outwardly, but internally, they're gone. They've shut down. And so for me, you know, even as I start my class, my first class is really introducing terms Mm -hmm. so that as we get along in this discussion, that people aren't just, you know, shutting books and leaving because they've been offended by something that I've said. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is, as you engage in these discussions, I think it's important for people to understand that you will be offended and you will offend somebody. Like just mm, let's, that's important. Let's just put that on the table, right? So, um, yeah. so don't shut down the conversation because you've offended someone or or you've been offended by someone. This discussion on race has been going on in this country since its inception. It is a very volatile um, conversation, but it can be done. Like it it is it is a conversation that can be had, but I think you have to go into this conversation with certain expectations. Um, and if those expectations are in place, and I think it can be a very cordial conversation that will lead to understanding and to some action. Um, so, yes, I think it is it is very important that these conversations be had. A key piece there is making sure that you have or if you don't have it, aggressively trying to get it psychological safety for your employees before you decide to talk about this. So you may just need to press pause and, you know, having this racial conversation next week, if you know that you have some other cultural issues when it comes to your employees feeling safe to be able to speak up in the workplace, or there's, you know, a presence of a perception of retaliation, or if you have any of those flags or things that you're working through from a cultural standpoint, make sure that you are, have already addressed those things, or you're addressing them simultaneously so that they all don't snowball Mm -hmm. into this, you know, um, in a racial way. And I think the other piece of it is, um, especially as a black woman, it's important to make sure that we are not inadvertently tiptoeing into tokenism. And what that means Mm. is putting um, someone kind of on display, whether it's intentional or inadvertently, um, and having to be responsible for bearing the weight of being the spokesperson. Um, They're not supposed to be in that role. So what that could look like is inadvertently having, you know, a forum or conversation on race with perfectly good intentions, um, but then uh, putting the weight and the burden on uh, people of color who are staff members to have to share their experiences, Mm. which may be very traumatizing experiences, Mm -hmm. professionally speaking, or from a personal standpoint. Um, We want to certainly be inclusive and make make them all uh, feel welcome to share their experiences should they choose to, but it's not fair to force them to go through bearing that burden and that weight, particularly if they're not in a leadership position and they're not Mm -hmm. heading this initiative. It's just really not fair. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, Danielle. And I think that's one of the mistakes that's easy to make as a white leader is you're like, okay, I know that I need to kind of step back and it can't be all about me. And I don't really have a firsthand experience with this experience of discrimination or inequity or injustice um, other than, you know, the ways that I'm complicit in it. And therefore, I'm just going to take, you know, all my black employees and ask them all to sit on a panel and 
teach the rest of us. And I think that's one of the things that where we can really get in trouble is Mm -hmm. we kind of get in this like, you know, Anthony, we've talked about this at the public, but uh, this kind of like white fragility place of, oh, I I can't do this on my own. I need you to do all the heavy lifting for me, you know, people of color, uh, because I'm, you know, so inadequate and whatever. And it just becomes this whole kind of weird situation. I, I, you know, from a leadership standpoint, I would say one of the most important things that we have to do as leaders, if you're white, is take responsibility for your own education. And there are a bajillion books out there. Many of them are on the New York Times list right now because of the conversations that we're having uh, in America at large. And just start reading those books. And then, as Anthony said, have conversations that are cross-racial. You know, I think that's yeah. that's important because otherwise, you know, you it's fine to make mistakes, but there's, there's not an excuse for being uneducated as a leader. I mean, it's just so accessible now that um, even if you don't have personal relationships with people of color, you can certainly access books that are written by people of color on these topics and mm-hmm. learn so much. And I, I just think that ought to be like emotional intelligence required education for all leaders, you know, in, in this century. Okay, I have one last question. As I've said probably 15 times now, we could really talk about this all day because it's so important. There's so much to talk about. But, you know, one of the most important things I heard you guys say is that it's critically important that you have people of color in leadership in your organization. That if if your, uh, you know, percentage of people of color is really talking about people who are, you know, kind of in the lower you know, bottom parts of your organization – there's, there aren't going to be the advocates, there aren't going to be the leadership decisions that need to be made by people of color that advance this cause and, you know, initiative within an organization and so forth. How do we intentionally promote and create growth paths for people of color within our organization? Let's say we've gotten the recruiting thing, we've gotten people in the door, you know, we're creating a culture that's positive and they're staying, but now we want to like move them up in the organization. How do we do that? One great thing about Michael Hyatt and company is we have this tool called a freedom compass that we use as an organization. Um, and it's, it's meant to be a point of self-reflection, but then also to help and encourage conversation between employee and their supervisor. And it talks about, uh, the areas where your proficiency and your passion meet that's called your desire zone. Um, and we hope that the majority of at least 50% or more, and oftentimes a much higher percentage than that, than that, if you're in a leadership position, we hope that most of your job, at least 50% or more of it is in that desire zone category. And there are other categories in this image of the compass that we talk about. Um, But I think that it's important to have um, those type of freedom compass, career development, inventory type of conversations with your uh, employees uh, on a a frequent basis, at least a couple of times a year. And I think in in doing that, um, we really want to encourage our staff to think about not only, you know, where do your proficiencies and your passions, you know, intersect, where are some in in your current role, but what are some things that maybe you are interested in? You're passionate about it, but you're not sure if you have a proficiency just yet, or maybe it's something that you can learn, or maybe you are proficient and passionate, but it's outside of your current job responsibility. And then I think it's up to the, the supervisor to be creative over a period of time, not overnight, but figure out what are some ways where I can help my, uh, my employee, my person of color, you know, that's reporting to me to expand 
their skill set, to expand their abilities, um, and be able to try out some things that they have not done before, um, in hopes of finding out, uh, learning more about a potential career path for them. I think that, um, those conversations are extremely important. Um, another thing that's important is encouraging, um, employees to develop and helping them to, um, to cultivate relationship internally within the company with someone else who can be their advocate, someone who is not just their direct supervisor alone, but someone else who's in the organization who they can, um, form somewhat of an alliance with where that person understands, um, their skill sets, understands what they bring to the table and they'll challenge them and say, Hey, have you tried doing this? Or have you asked your supervisor that? Um, and I found for me and the organizations that I've been in, and been successful, um, oftentimes that has, or that opportunity has been organically or intentionally created for me where I had someone who, um, was always kind of had my best interest in, at heart, was advocating before me when I wasn't there, they were in a leadership role, but that really helps to make space for them and, pro- and provide more access and opportunity for potential promotions that otherwise would not have been there. Uh, but it also gives a great, um, provides a great opportunity for what we call job shadowing and job interviews where informally, um, your staff can spend time with someone and and learn more about what that person does and ask them questions about what they do to figure out if there is some overlap and some interest there. And, um, and I think so that's something that can happen internally, but then also encouraging your employees to develop, um, mentors, um, outside of the organization who are subject matter experts, experts in the area that they want to grow and become more proficient in. Um, this has been a huge, uh, something that I have leverage and taken advantage of as well, um, outside of the company, but, uh, but people who have someone who is not working at the same company, doesn't have to deal with the same politics potentially internally can help to be a really good source of inspiration and practical wisdom, um, to help, uh, your employees to be able to, to learn how to find their career path and the next step. Um, and then, and then beyond that, I think really it's, um, it behooves us as organization, uh, leaders to put a lot of, ent- a lot of time and intentionality into succession planning, not just for our uh, C-suite executives, but looking at succession planning organization wide, Mm. Um, looking at, okay, you know, when you have your executive that moves into their new role or that moves from a director level role to executive, what opportunities does that create internally for your staff? And how Mm -hmm. do you potentially see the people that you have now um, growing to be able to fill them and beginning to think of building your bench, not just as uh, an external concept for hiring people outside of the company, but how can you build your bench internally for director level roles or for manager level roles or even executive positions within your company? And how, what's your vision for incorporating people of color into that and Mm. beginning to look at that on a monthly basis? It's really good, Danielle. Anthony, anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add, I mean, all of that is just amazing. Like, um, is, is, I don't, I don't necessarily see leadership development as a different thing for uh, for people of color than right, for the right. general public, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I would say just make sure that those who are in leadership, supervisors, managers, again, I'm going back to this implicit bias, right? Make sure that they understand that um, this person of color in this particular position has just as many skill sets as um, right. a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, and they deserve... Um, the same kind of leadership development that every other person in your organization deserves. And so let's spend the time um, to understand their skill sets, understand what they can develop, 
and then begin putting efforts into that person as you were putting efforts into every other mm-hmm. employee yeah. Yeah. so that they might advance um, and, 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 and acquire some of those maybe even C-suite um, uh, uh, positions that they, they're very much qualified for. My only thing is, again, understanding what those implicit biases are that tell me about this particular person. Right. Because it could be in my mind that when I think leader, I just think white. I don't even know that I think that. Right. But when I look at my company, everybody's white. So I'm just thinking if you're a leader, that's that's an implicit prerequisite to becoming a leader is being white. Obviously, none of us would say that consciously. Right. You know, I mean, at least 99 percent of us hopefully wouldn't. But but it's like it's in the background just because that's how we think about it. So I think that's a really good point. Just challenge that in your own mind and expand it to include people of color as potential candidates for leadership as you're thinking about developing the next generation of leaders in your organization. Guys, we could keep talking all day long. This has been so rich. I've learned so much from both of you. Um, thank you again for your willingness to share and help us you know, expand our thinking in this area. Um, I hope for those of you listening that this has had the same effect on you. I hope you're inspired and excited to think about how your organization can grow in this area, what your vision is. Um, and I would really encourage you as a next step, two things, to educate yourself, uh, you know, to look at that New York Times list for potential books that uh, you could be reading to start educating yourself if this is a new conversation for you. But second of all, to really think about how this is a component of your vision. What kind of company culture do you want to build with regard to people of color and diversity in general? I think that's really important as we're thinking about the future, as we're thinking about all the reasons we talked about today. So um, hopefully this has been helpful for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be right back here next week. Until then, lead to win. This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael Hyatt's new business growth training, Five Keys to Building a Business that Lasts in Any Economy. You can sign up today at leadto.win slash webinar.